whatever George Lucas' intent was, I mean, I think this idea of what it informs us of and how it can tell us these stories, and it's affected people's lives and how people um, have responded to it and how people have kind of embraced it as part of their life. Classical antiquity is so interested in these subjects that it creates, uh, you know, they created some very interesting material about that, and then that has influenced Star Wars. So it's been a really lovely way of getting out there this, this material for helping young people and other people think about issues like power growing up or rites of passage and how that can mean challenges or conflict and, and yeah, ideas about how power can get out of hand. Welcome to Classics Confidential. This episode we're talking about Star Wars. We recorded this material in Canterbury at the 2017 Classical Association Conference, which was jointly hosted by the University of Kent and the Open University. This panel was organised by one of the leading scholars on classics and science fiction. I'm Tony Keane uh, from the University of Roehampton. 2017 is 40 years since the first release of Star Wars. Classical reception has been hardwired into Star Wars right from the very beginning that George Lucas as a child in the 1950s and 1960s watched all these movies all these Robert, classic Roman movies uh, you know Ben-Hur, Quo Vadis, all of this stuff and a lot of it goes directly into some of the Star Wars stuff in The Phantom Menace you have the pod race scene which is a clear reference to the chariot sequence in Ben-Hur um, and the big parade at the very end of The Phantom Menace is actually taken shot for shot out of Fall of the Roman Empire of 1964 at a parade scene in that um, and then Lucas further was reading around stuff uh, I mean, he says he said that he was reading about the ways in which democracies turned into dictatorships and one of his examples of that was um, the Roman Republic turning into the Roman Empire so Julius Caesar established himself um, getting himself killed but then all the power devolves upon um, his nephew Octavian uh, and that's something that Lucas was interested in and also he's reading Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces so he's absolutely getting stuck into mythic structures. Mythic structures is probably a good place to start. Two of the papers in Tony's panel explored parallels between the narrative of Star Wars and the storylines of Greek myth thinking about the potentials and limitations of this kind of comparative analysis. My name is Joanna Komorowska and I teach Greek literature at the Cardinal Stefan Wyszyński University in Warsaw. Obi-Wan Kenobi is the guy basically uh, everybody is searching for, or rather the whole rebellion is searching for, and he appears in the middle of the Tantuin wasteland. So you have this... Uh, outer rim planet and the wasteland and this uh, 
powerful figure living as a hermit. So basically this is the travel either to, in a fable it would be a f travel to meet a sorcerer or something, a being of supreme power at least. Um, so in, in the original Star Wars movie, that's the New Hope, you basically have this uh, atopical hermit appearing and displaying powers far beyond comprehension. He is able to turn everyone's mind, he is able to influence how people behave, uh, he is able to pass undetected uh, through number of imperial guards. Basically, he infiltrates the imperial battle station without much trouble because he is who he is. So. Uh, Actually, he could be compared either to Hermes in, in, in the Iliad, trying, guiding Priam to the uh, Greek camp, or um, to Athene as protectress of Odysseus, obviously. And even more importantly, he's kind of mentor figure to Luke Skywalker, the hero uh, of, this, of, Star, of original Star Wars, which expressly puts him in position of Athene. Funnily, all this, those moments when his voice is heard, but he is not seen, he, well, he dies, as Jedis do, that is, he does not die, he just seems to change the form of his existence. So he is capable of influencing Luke behavior even from beyond what for a normal person would be a grave. So he's basically an immortal at that. Joanna's paper, which was co-authored with Aneta Klisch from the Jesuit University in Krakow, explored these parallels between the Jedi Knights in the original Star Wars trilogy and the gods of Euripidean tragedy, who also have a habit of intervening in mortal affairs. Meanwhile, Benjamin Howland from Louisiana State University looked at possible resonances between Star Wars and the myth of Oedipus. And my paper was about the idea of fate and generational strife that's present in Sophocles's Oedipus Rex, um, and then that fate and generational strife that we see evident in the relationship between Emperor Palpatine, Darth Vader, and Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, and sort of how they drive, they drive themselves to complete their own fates or destinies, um, both inside of Oedipus and inside of the Star Wars world. Oedipus was cast out from his birth family because of an oracle, though he spent the early part of his life in blissful ignorance of that. However, as soon as he got an inkling of what had happened, he started to try and fight against his fate, which, as Benjamin showed in his paper, paradoxically led him to fulfil it. Everything he does in trying to reject this, this prophecy given by the Delphic Oracle, everything he does basically makes it happen that he accomplishes everything. Because if he just went back to Corinth, he, could, he couldn't have actually killed his father and stuff his mother because they're not in the city of Corinth. So what about the role of fate in Star Wars? Emperor Palpatine in The Empire Strikes Back tells Darth Vader, well, we basically we have a new enemy and it's Luke Skywalker. Um, and we need to do something about it because he's he could destroy us, basically, is what he tells him. And so they come to the conclusion that what needs what should be done is that Darth Vader should go and bring either bring Luke to the Emperor or try to cross him over to the dark side. 
And so all of these interactions that Luke and Darth Vader have with each other, Vader sort of, I don't know if he breaks, I mean, how can you say he breaks protocol, but he reveals so much information to Luke that Luke starts to see that he's still a good person, that he's still good. And so when he, um, in this yeah. final battle, when Luke has the opportunity to kill his father, um, he chooses not to. Um, and so what happens is when Darth Vader stands back up and he's standing there next to the Emperor, he's sort of on this, the cliff, if you will, where he can either let Luke die and stay by the Emperor's side or he can kill the Emperor and help Luke to live. And so that's what he, he chooses, obviously, to kill um, the Emperor. And so what happens is everything that leads to the Emperor's destruction and really Darth Vader's destruction is brought about in the journey that they, they sort of have, this attempt to make Luke, bring Luke to the dark side, gives Luke the fuel and sort of, it gives Luke the, the chance to kind of push back against Darth Vader and lead him essentially back to the light side, if you will, uh, after he kills the Emperor. So everything that the Emperor sends Darth Vader to do and everything that Darth Vader does to sort of get Luke to come to the dark side um, to prevent themselves from being killed by him is the fuel that actually leads to them being destroyed. Um, not quite how the Emperor maybe sees it, but um, and maybe that is how we saw it. Maybe that's why he... Who knows? I mean, obviously it's out of the movies. We don't see that in the film, so... All the panel members acknowledge that these classical parallels need to be treated with caution. Yes, people who've studied Homer can't fail to be struck by the mythical dimensions of Star Wars. It's like watching an epic poem projected into space. But the same basic archetypes are evident in a huge variety of other mythical traditions from across the globe, as George Lucas knew very well. Tony's already mentioned that Lucas was reading Joseph Campbell's 1949 study of comparative mythology, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Here's Joanna again. The problem is that the same role is fulfilled by number of uh, <laughs> any number of figures in any heroic tale. So you, um, so in fact, by um, trying um, to, by seeking to identify the classical as in Greek and Roman paradigm, you are, as a matter of fact, sort of limiting the. Um, putting a limit on the scope of possible allusions because um, as we all know the um, original trilogy being built on Campbellian um, paradigm uh, just suits any heroic tale yeah sure um, um, there are moments when um, when when uh, a Jedi Knight or um, his spectral vision will appear as a sort of deus ex machina but um, and you may think that owing to the uh, usual education everyone receives in in, in Western culture, um, George Lucas might have been influenced by the classical drama or uh, by Homer. Um, but if he was, it was on such a basic level that I don't I would not think he was expressly thinking oh let's do Athena and Telemachus he was just thinking oh let's do the God advising a man and uh, if he if he follows the Homeric paradigm it's simply because the Homeric paradigm is one so deeply inculcate, inculcated into in, in our uh, intellectual makeup. 
Perhaps we could argue that this multiplicity, this simultaneous evocation of many different mythical universes, is part of what creates the magic of Star Wars. It's the scope of illusions, as Joanna puts it. At the same time, there are other ways in which we really do think George Lucas was influenced by a classical and a specifically Roman model. Tristan Taylor is from the University of New England in Australia. So I was looking at the way in which uh, the representation of empire and dictatorship or autocracy in the Star Wars films uh, taps into 20th century and 21st century anxieties and concerns about empire more broadly and autocracy more broadly. And while there are concerns about dictatorship, we can trace back to antiquity, the very story of the foundation of Rome involves kicking out a king and establishing a republic. Um, the, the theme of the, certainly the prequel films is the, how a democracy can voluntarily become a dictatorship. And this was a theme prominent in the, the 1930s. And you can also, of course, it's something you can attach to Napoleon and some other people as well. And the fact that in the original trilogy, uh, Empire is, uh, is so irredeemably evil is a 20th century phenomenon because a, up until the early 20th century, Empire was something to aspire to, particularly in, in Europe, and, but elsewhere as well. To have an Empire was glorious. To be subject to it was pretty awful, but to have one is, is a glorious thing. Um, but by the time we come to the 1970s, uh, you have a very different point of view about what Empire is, concerns about neo-imperialism, the USSR in Russia and Eastern Europe, America in Vietnam and Latin America. And George Lucas is, you know, I've been asking the question of intentionality, George Lucas does actually say he is tapping into this idea, he is influenced by this idea and by these historical events, including explicitly, he mentions the Roman example and the foundation of the Roman Empire. Now, another classical aspect of Star Wars is less about mythical and historical narratives as such, and more about visual style. Here's Sonia Nevin from the University of Roehampton. Yeah, it's got a really interesting visual style. Part of it um, came from that they really wanted to have a sort of beaten up world, so it looked quite lived in. And I think that works quite well for evoking ideas of antiquity, uh, not a polished antiquity but a lived in one which I think is quite pleasing but I also did a little bit of a sort of fun publication a little while ago looking at the imagery particularly with helmets and things like that you can see so much of the influence of antiquity um, in the way stormers stormtroopers look in the way the Mandalorian armor looks things like that little things like that and down to the sets and the use of um, you said about like the displays but also like the big scenes of palaces and things like that there's a lot of interest in the way they look and that look is often antiquity or antiquity mashed with something else in an interesting combination. I asked Sonia to pick out a particular object or image from the films that had really impressed her. I went to the Star Wars Identities exhibition in London recently which is very good fun and has lots of nice things to look at but one of the things that really blew my mind was it had the large frieze uh, that they that they have in the prequels in Palpatine's office and it's behind Palpatine's desk and it's a big frieze of uh, the ancient battle of the Sith and of course when you are looking at him thinking he's uh, 
you know, he's the emperor or, or no, he's the chancellor and a, and a goodie, you think he's got that up there as, an, as a representation of uh, this is long ago and this is the origin of, uh, of, of good triumphing over the Sith. But actually, once the revelation comes through, you, you realise that he's got that because his interest in antiquity of that universe is, is that he, he wishes to revive the Sith and be the Sith. And when he reveals himself as the great... Sith Lord, he is he is standing in front of that image of ancient Sith of his universe there. I just thought, oh, they just really love that universe and the way it hangs together, and it was really pleasing. That introduces a fascinating issue, the extent to which Star Wars looks at its own history and creates its own deep past. The new one, the one that's coming in Christmas, we see this idea where Luke, I mean, the few lines we have where Luke is telling Ray, you know, what do you see? You know, I see the light, I see the dark. And in the, um, and in the trailer, you see her in this cave looking at this book with the symbol of the Jedi. Um, and what it seems, and even the island that it's on, of course, is supposed to be the first Jedi sanctuary. Um, and so um, this idea of going back, so Sonia was talking about the, the Sith, um, you know, carving behind um, Emperor Palpatine there in his, um, in his chamber. And I think, you know, even within the universe itself, the constant remembering the past, um, which is, of course, something we see in Roman history. I mean, in, in um, Rome, early, the early Roman imperial period, I mean, Augustus, they're always talking about, oh, that republic. Like, they're always referring back, there's that constant referring back to the republic to sort of inform the social memory of Rome. And we, I think you see that inside of the, the Star, Star Wars world. Like, I mean, well, yeah, there was this republic. Or even the line that you used to describe our panel, it's real, all of it, where Han in The Force Awakens tells Rey and Finn that, yes, the Jedi were real. Yes, the, the dark side was real. Yes, I'm, I mean, essentially, yes, I'm Han Solo, the one that you think I am. Um, yes, Luke Skywalker was a real, um, real person. So that constant remembering of the past. Um, and I almost feel like, like I said, with this new one, we're, who knows what we're going to see? None of us know. Um, but I think that it appears, at least in the trailer so far, that it's still that going back and understanding how the Jedi were at first, which is something that only the expanded universe has really dealt with. So to see it inside of canon, if you will, I think can be very fascinating to see. I'm sort of hoping, I have my fingers crossed, that that's what we're going to see. Yeah, it's the, there's always been that hint of a deeper past. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm thinking particularly of the fourth moon of Yavin in the original Star Wars movie and then the jungle planet whose name I cannot remember in Force Awakens. But where where the rebel where the, the new Rebel Alliance base is in Force Awakens. Both of those are modern military rebel bases that have built into a fab been built into a fabric that's clearly much older and nobody ever says anything about what there is this old fabric is but it's there and it's a sort of sense that there's there's more to go back to um that you know that this is this is a universe with history even that 
opening premise is so delightful in Star Wars that so much sci-fi is futuristic and of course one of the things that's so yeah uh, fundamental to Star Wars is it being a long time ago and that gives you that idea straight away of a long space of time and yeah that idea of looking back as well as forward. I had one final question for our panel. Is Star Wars our mythology in the same way that stories of people like Odysseus and Hippolytus and Phaedra and Actaeon were for the Greeks? The urge is different. I wouldn't want to overplay the similarity between our relationship with modern myth and ancient people's relationship with myth, which is different, but I think that a lot of the instincts are the same of wanting role models and wanting... Uh, scenarios played out, characters you care about, uh, things that you can relate to as well as things that are very different and yeah those instincts are quite quite human even if they're different. I've written a couple of times about um, science fiction as modern mythology um, and one of the things, one of the points I'm keen to make is that we talk about Star Wars as a modern mythology, but it's important to emphasise that it's a modern mythology. Now, for the Greeks and the Romans, they really only have one mythology, and all those stories interact, and they're all part of the same, um, yeah, the same multiverse of same universe if you want to uh, look at it in those sort of terms and yes there are different versions of telling those stories but you're still operating in fundamentally the Olympian universe with the Olympian gods and they don't have completely separate mythologies operating side by side whereas in the modern times we've got Star Wars we've got the Star Trek mythology we've got the Doctor Who mythology we've got Marvel Comics universe, we've got the DC Comics universe um, we've got all these different and from the point of view of the franchise owners discreet existences, uh, discrete mythologies, although one of the things that fans like to do is collide these together. So that, that, that's one of the things that, uh, that, that, that fans can do, but it, is, it means that our modern relationship to these texts as mythologies is different from the Greek and Roman relationship to these texts. Um, not least because there's somebody who owns those mythologies. You know, there's somebody who owns... Star Trek is owned by Paramount. Carrie Fisher had that great joke that every time she looks in the mirror she has to give George Lucas a dollar. <laughs> That's not the same for Orpheus. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much to everyone who contributed to the episode. The voices belonged in order of appearance to Benjamin Howland, Sonia Nevin, Tony Keane, Joanna Komorowska and Tristan Taylor. And this programme was produced by me, Jessica Hughes. 
Thanks to the Open University, the University of Kent and the Classical Association for hosting the CA 2017 conference. There'll be plenty more programmes from there coming soon. In the meantime, may the force be with you.